It is always good to have Carl and Lori Kresge with us. Uh, maybe not all of you know this, but both of them grew up here right at First Baptist Church. And we've actually seen Carl and Lori quite a bit this past year uh, under difficult circumstances. Uh, we conducted Carl's father's funeral uh, right here uh, in July of last year. And then we also conducted Lori's mom's funeral here uh, last September. So they've been through some deep valleys over the last year. Carl has served with Send International since the mid-90s and has been the Eurasia Regional Director for Send since 2000. Carl, it is great to have you back. Come and share God's word with us. Thank you, Tim, and thank you, First Baptist, for the invitation. There's no missions conference I'd rather speak at than I don't know where that came from, but right here. <clears throat> this church means a lot to us. <clears throat> Tonight, I will be um, telling more about our ministry with um, Center National in Russia, Ukraine, and Kazakhstan, and uh, just a chance for you to ask some questions and find out more about what it is that we're doing that you are supporting. And I'd encourage you to come back for that, more of an informal uh, time of, of reporting. I love your conference theme. When Tim sent me the theme as God will be exalted among the nations, I thought, tremendous. I, I love that theme. It was actually a seminar here in the late 1900s. Uh, I am turning 60 in a couple of uh, weeks, but uh, in the late 1990s, uh, Bob Shogren had a, had a seminar here on one weekend, and it just opened my eyes to that theme. Matter of fact, it drove me in the next couple of, ye couple of years to, to do a study of my own through the Bible to see if what Bob said was true, and that is that the main theme, clearly the heart of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, is the fact that God wants his glory taken to the nations. And I went, went through that study, was more and more convinced by that, and um, just a wonderful theme. And I'm guessing that the remaining speakers at your mission conference are probably going to focus on what the Bible says about the nations. That is the task of missions. That's, that's the Great Commission, making God famous, exalting his name, among all of the ethnic people groups of the world. That's what it's all about. Several years ago when I was here, after I had done that study of my own, I tried to make the point that God's passion to see his glory taken to the nations is the singular most important theme from Genesis to Revelation. We took a quick tour all the way through the Bible to try to make that point. Um, I'd like to show you just a little two-minute video clip of, of a pictorial presentation of that spread of the gospel from Christ until the present. So let's go ahead and see that.
fascinating to see the history of that. God will be exalted among the nations. It is happening. There's a lot of work yet to remain. I'm currently studying in my own devotional time the book of Acts and loving it. It's all about this theme. Dr. Luke very skillfully outlines the story of God being glorified among the nations as the gospel spreads from this small band of believers, disciples in Jerusalem, to the Jews beyond that, and then the Gentiles, and across the known world at that time. And so when, when Tim sent me this theme, my first thought was, well, I'm going to do what I did from Genesis to Revelation just in the book of Acts with you, and I'd love to do that sometime. And that is look at this unfolding of God's glory taken to the nations just in the book of Acts. I would commend that study to you sometime. Take, take a few months to study this book paragraph by paragraph and watch that theme and watch your life be impacted by how God is working in this world. But then as I read Psalm 46.10 again, your theme verse, the Lord drew my attention to the fact that the first part of that verse says, be still and know that I am God. And something stood out to me that I don't remember considering before. The second part is a promise. It states a fact about this God that we are encouraged to know. But the first part is the command. The first part is something that you and I are exhorted to do. The first part is, in one sense, the foundation from which the second part emerges, or the root from which the tree grows in the second part. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I'm going to try to make the point this morning that the most important thing we can do to see God's name exalted among the nations is to be enamored with him, to be in love with Jesus, to be heartfelt worshipers of our King, to rejoice in the gospel every day of our lives. I'd like to talk, you to, this, talk to you this morning about that word gospel that you see so many times in the book of Acts. The spread of the gospel is what it's all about. Luke starts out the book of Acts with that statement, in my former book, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach. Well, I'd like to go to that former book with you that Luke wrote and look at just one passage where he records something that Jesus said that has impacted my life and I believe goes to the heart of what the gospel is all about. Now, I'd like to have you ask yourself a question. When I said I was going to talk about the gospel, what was your initial response to that? Was it possibly something like, I'm already a believer? I already know the plan of salvation, so I can just check out and think about something else here because this is going to be a message for unbelievers. But I'd like you to stay with me for a minute. The question I'd like to ask this morning is, who is the gospel for? Is the gospel just for unbelievers? Is it only the plan of salvation for those who've never received Christ so they can be saved? And then once you're saved, you move beyond the gospel to the rest of the Bible for growth in Christ and maturity as a Christian. Is that the way it works? You know that the word gospel means good news. And you know at the very heart of the gospel, the very heart of that good news, 
is what Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 15, that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, and that he rose again. That is the core of the message that unbelievers need to hear. And if you're here this morning and have never believed that core message, if you've never acted on it by faith, please hear me. This good news is that you can have your sins totally forgiven. You can have your broken relationship with the creator of the universe restored. Paul said, believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Please don't live another day without taking that simple step of faith, which will result in eternal life and peace and joy. Now let's look at what Luke wrote in chapter 10 of his first book. Luke chapter 10. We're going to focus on verses 17 to 20, but let's start at the beginning of that chapter for a little context. Verse 1 says, After this the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. And he told them, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Go. I am sending you out like lambs among wolves. Do not take a purse or bag or sandals, and do not greet anyone on the road. And then verse 9, heal the sick who are there and tell them the kingdom of God is near you. They were to announce that the kingdom of God had arrived. He says it would not be easy. They would be like lambs among wolves. That must have been a bit unnerving for them as they headed out for this trip. You don't have to be a farmer to know that lambs don't fare very well among wolves. My cousin is a sheep farmer up in the UP. And after he experienced several of his sheep getting getting slaughtered by wolves, there's, there's a picture of his field in the next picture he decided to buy a couple of great Pyrenees dogs who would live with those sheep. And as long as those dogs were there in that pen or out in the pasture, then those sheep were okay. But without them, the sheep are helpless when a wolf decides it's time for lunch. So when Jesus warns his followers who are heading out for this short-term missions trip that it's not going to be an easy assignment, that it's going to be like lamb among wolves, they were probably a little bit unnerved. He actually goes on to tell them that some would reject their message. And he tells them that they were to trust God to meet their needs and not take extra supplies with them, which made them even more vulnerable. They were supposed to get right to the task and not waste time on cultural niceties like long extended greetings. They were to give a taste of what life is like with the Messiah around, what life is like in the kingdom of God, even to the point of healing the sick. Now, Luke doesn't give us any details about what happened during their mission trip or how long it was, but in verses 17 to 20, Luke tells us what happened when they came back. Let's read that. The 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. He replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice 
that your names are written in heaven. So in verse 17, the 72 return with joy. And what is the primary reason for their joy? They were ecstatic about the power of Jesus' name against the demons. Jesus had warned them of the danger and their vulnerability and that they would face rejection. Some of them were probably scared out of their wits as they left on this trip. And notice that Jesus didn't even give them the promise before they went, like he did in the Great Commission in Matthew 28, I will go with you, I will be with you, don't worry. He didn't give them any promise. He just sent them off and said, it's going to be a challenge. And since their master asked them to go, they went. And according to verse 17, their mission was a huge success. God had met their needs. Some had been receptive to their message. They had healed sick people. And some had even seen people freed through their ministry from the horrible suffering and bondage of demons. It seemed like they might have been even a bit surprised as they gave their report to Jesus. And their testimony shows that they recognized their dependence on Jesus. It says, it happened in your name. Even demons were obeying commands given in Jesus' name. How exciting to be a part of this ministry. They may have thought, I didn't know God could do such great things through me. How great to be involved in spreading God's kingdom here on earth. They hadn't expected this kind of success when Jesus first sent them out, and that brought great joy to them. Now, how is Jesus going to respond to that report? He is the one they are serving. He is the one they are trying to please. They are so thrilled with how it turned out. But what will their master say? The next three verses give us three statements by Jesus in response to that amazing ministry of the disciples. One statement is about the past. The second statement is about the future. And the third statement is about the right now. Verse 18 Jesus' statement about the past. He replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. In that statement, Jesus confirms their success. He says, I know. I saw Satan falling. I saw his kingdom shrinking. You were very effective in your ministry. You made real progress against the enemy. And that response must have delighted the disciples. Now, you and I understand today that the defeat of Satan is not yet complete. He is still prowling around like a roaring lion, looking to destroy, looking to cause death, looking to disrupt. But the war against him ultimately has been won. Jesus confirms that the experience of the disciples was real. It was no fluke what happened to them. The kingdom of God has arrived although not yet in its fullness. The defeat of Satan by the Messiah is occurring in the works of Jesus and his disciples. Look at verse 19, his second statement. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. Now, at first glance, that might sound kind of like strange language, some kind of snake magic or voodoo. But you need to understand that snakes were symbolic of of demons in Jewish thought. And when you look at the fact that Jesus said in the second part of that statement that they will have authority over all the power of the enemy, I think that indicates that these snakes and scorpions are figurative language describing that enemy. 
describing Satan and his forces. You remember the first promise of the gospel in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where it says the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. That promise is being fulfilled here. In this second statement of Jesus, he adds some great promises about future ministry. He's saying, what you've just experienced is just the beginning of what you're going to do for me. And I, as king, grant you authority to fight against that enemy, to expose their lies, and to minimize their influence. They cannot stand against you. Nothing they do can defeat you. No power of theirs can hinder you. They have no secret weapon that can overpower you. You don't need to fear them in the least. They can't hurt you. They can't stop you, was his promise to those disciples. How incredible was that? What must the disciples have felt when they heard Jesus say those things? And by the way, don't forget that Jesus' words apply to you and me today as well. Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. Now verse 20. Jesus' first response looked back and he confirmed their success. His second response looked ahead and promised even greater things. But now in verse 20, Jesus changes his tone and says something that speaks to the present. He sees something in his disciples. He sees that in spite of the wonderful success in the past and the great promises for the future, something is not quite right now. Something is out of place in their hearts, in their priorities, in their values. He says, however, in spite of what I said in the first statement and the second statement, However, do not rejoice that the the spirits submit to you. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Isn't that interesting? He's saying to them, although you've had a great victory and there's more to come, this should not be your main source of joy and motivation. Don't let success in ministry become your highest joy. Sometimes we will not be successful. Sometimes we will face severe opposition. Sometimes missionaries spend years of hard work in hard soil with little to no fruit. But there is one thing that never changes, and it is more important than effective ministry. What is that one thing? We were dead and have been made alive. We were in bondage and have been set free. You and I were enemies of God, our creator, and we have been reconciled to him and granted total forgiveness and eternal life. The greatest thing that could possibly happen to a human being happened to me. There are lots of good things that may happen to us, getting a great job, marrying a wonderful person, receiving an unexpected gift, having a child, experiencing great success in ministry, etc. But none of those things come close to what it means to be saved. Be still and know that I am God. And you know something about that God? He knows my name. Nothing else compares to that. My name is written in his book. Even if no one else here knows my name, I am well known there. We need to be careful that nothing else, whether something 
good, like the disciples experienced on their trip, or something bad, something difficult, we need to be careful that nothing else crowds out of our minds the joy and wonder of our salvation. It's like if someone gave you a million dollars one day, and the next day, you're walking along, you look down, and you find a quarter. Or the next day, you had a quarter in your pocket and got a hole in your pocket, and you lost a quarter. Would that really affect your mood, your attitude, your joy? If we who are saved and promised a glorious eternal future are not the happiest people on earth today, what does that say about us? What is it that we are valuing above our salvation? What is it that we are valuing above this God who has rescued us and called us into this intimate relationship of peace and forgiveness? What has replaced our joy? Why aren't we doing what the man in Matthew 13, 44 did? He found the treasure hidden in the field. He hid it again, and then, the Bible says, in his joy, he went and sold everything he had and came back so he could have this treasure. It was worth everything to him. That's Luke 10. Anytime we read the word of God, I like to say, let's ask the so what question. So what? what? What difference does that passage make? What impact should that have on your life and my life? And I've just got to wrap it up here, four observations from that passage. Number one, the gospel is for believers every day and for all of eternity. If the gospel is only the plan of salvation for how unbelievers can be saved, then Christ would never have made this statement in Luke 10, verse 20. But he does make this statement to his disciples. He makes it to his believers, to believers, <coughs> to those so committed to him that they were willing to take this missionary journey, even though he said it was going to be like lambs among wolves. He tells them that there is something else more important than serving him, more important than seeing great fruit and effectiveness in that service to him. What is it? Rejoicing in the gospel. He says, rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Yes, the gospel is for unbelievers. Absolutely. It's the good news that we are commissioned by our king to take to the nations. But the gospel is also for you and me if you are a follower of Jesus Christ. It is much more than past tense. Titus chapter 2 and verses 11 through 13 make that point. That passage talks about grace, which is at the very heart of the gospel. As you're reading through the New Testament, when you see grace, think gospel. As a matter of fact, in Acts chapter 20, Paul calls it the gospel of God's grace. And what, is, what does Paul say in Titus 2.11? The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. That's past tense. We are justified that the moment we trusted Christ as our Savior, acknowledged our sin and said we can't do this on our own and received his free gift of eternal life, we were justified. Look at verse 12. Grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. That's, that's present tense. The gospel of grace 
is not just past. The gospel of grace is for today. Sanctification, this process of becoming more like Christ. The gospel of grace is for every believer in Christ every day. Without it, we'd be hopeless. You and I can no, lo can no more keep ourselves saved than we could save ourselves in the first place. It's all God. It's all his grace. In verse 13, while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's future tense. Another verse that shows us that gospel is future is Romans 2.16. This will take place on the day when God will judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ as my gospel declares. The gospel includes even the future day of judgment. In Revelation 14.6, it's called the eternal gospel. There are dozens of other passages that make it very clear that the gospel is something that the believer needs to preach to himself every day. Let me give you just a couple of examples. One is Paul's prayers for the believers. I'd encourage you sometime to find Paul's prayers in the epistles and pray those prayers for your fellow disciples. Listen to some of those prayers. That we will know the riches of their glorious inheritance in the saints. Paul is praying that for followers of Jesus. And if it was automatic for every follower of Jesus to be rejoicing in the gospel, Paul wouldn't have been so concerned about praying that prayer for them. That we will joyfully give thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins." Paul prays that we might have power to grasp how wide and long and high and deep the love of Christ is. You know what Paul is praying for, for those believers? That they would be still and know and reflect on and be enamored with the God who would save them and become their father. And look at Psalm 32, verses 1 through 2. This is in the New Living Translation. Oh, what joy! For those whose disobedience is forgiven, whose sin is put out of sight. Yes, what joy for those whose record the Lord has cleared of guilt. And all God's people said, do you have that joy? When is the last time I've experienced fresh joy over the amazing truth that I've been granted forgiveness? Or relief that God has taken something ugly, something I'm ashamed of, my sin, and according to that verse, put it out of his sight. God has cleared my record. God has erased my guilt. How long since I've meditated on that and experienced the resulting joy that it brings? A second observation. Rejoicing in the gospel is the most important thing a child of God can do. Jesus clearly states in verse 20 that serving him, and even serving him with great power and effectiveness, is not as important as rejoicing in the gospel. The last five verses of that same chapter in Luke makes the same point. Do you remember Martha serving Jesus with all of her heart? And what was Mary doing? Sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening to him, communing with him, rejoicing in him. And we're stunned when Jesus rebukes Martha and tells her that Mary has chosen what is better. The point? Serving the Lord is not the most important thing. Enjoying him is. 
I believe that the first phrase in our theme verse of Psalm 4610 is making that same point. To be still and know that Yahweh is our God is to stop and think about the truth. Set aside the distractions, whether everything is rosy or whether you're walking through extremely difficult times and think about the God who saved you. Every, everything else is temporary. If you look at the rest of Psalm 46, it's a list of characteristics of this God that we are encouraged to be still and know. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. When we rejoice in the gospel, we do both. Our rejoicing that our names are written in heaven is just a precursor to the rejoicing that we will do when we actually get there for all eternity. Rejoicing in the gospel results in praise. Resulting, it results in glorifying God. It results in a passion to see his reputation, his amazing grace taken to all the nations. So when you and I serve God, whether through loving a neighbor or singing in church or teaching Sunday school or ushering or working in the nursery or praying for more missionaries or preaching or witnessing, we need to remind ourselves that any joy that we feel in that service needs to be secondary, secondary to rejoicing that our names are written in heaven. The reason, the motive for doing that ministry should be because I am so overjoyed at being saved. Imagine two different churches, both evangelical, both sound Bible-preaching churches, except one of them is without that kind of joy, and the other is full of joy of their salvation. Which of them will attract people to the gospel? Which of them will result in God's name being exalted, both locally and globally? Third observation. Our level of joy is dependent on our level of faith. Or to put it another way, if we believe, we will rejoice. Or to put it yet another way, Failure to rejoice springs from unbelief. If I don't have joy right now, there's something I'm not believing right now. It's impossible to believe and not have joy. i got a whole lot I'd like to say about that, but for the sake of time, let me just say this. If you find yourself lacking joy, ask yourself, ask God, what is it that you're not believing? If you truly believe all that God says about himself and about you and about the cross and about forgiveness and about your future, you will have joy. Figure out what you're struggling to really believe and then say to God, like the father of the boy with the evil spirit, I believe you, God. Help me overcome my unbelief. Then, once you've addressed the problem of unbelief, you will be able to say with Habakkuk, and this is amazing, though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes in the vines, though the olive crop fails, and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen, and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. If you believe, you can say that with Habakkuk. This is a daily battle. 
we have to struggle with it constantly. Do you know that it is possible for us to actually fall into the habit of forgetting about our salvation? Every day we need to remind ourselves the greatest thing that could possibly happen to a human being has happened to me. Nothing that happens today, good or bad, can change that. I will not let anything distract me from the joy of my salvation, from the joy of my relationship with God. And finally, number four, God's people rejoicing in the gospel will inevitably lead to God being exalted among the nations. Be still and know the gospel. Be still and feel the gospel. Be still and rejoice in the gospel. Be still and astounded that this God, this all-powerful, sovereign creator of the universe who knows your name, will be exalted among the nations. Everything in our culture fights against being still. You've got to swim upstream on this one. All of the gadgets and the busyness and the demands and the entertainment and the smartphones and the distractions in our culture fight against Psalm 46.10. But if you do it, if all of you here at First Baptist would daily be still and reflect on what this God has done for you and become more and more enamored with Jesus, it would transform this church in incredible ways and greatly multiply the impact and the light of this church throughout St. John's and around the world. And that's how God will be exalted among the nations. So let me just challenge you throughout this missions conference, as you hear biblical challenges of our responsibility to take God's glory to the nations, and as you consider what part God wants you as an individual to play in that, Remember that the first and most important thing you can do is think about and rejoice and live out the gospel every day of your life. And the result will be that you will find a way to participate in that great commission, whether through praying or giving or going. If a follower of Jesus doesn't care about God's glory being taken to the nations or is indifferent to it, he is totally missing out the main of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. But if we as followers of Jesus do care about God being exalted among the nations, the most important thing we can do in order to see that happen is to every day rejoice that our names are written in heaven, to never cease to be amazed at the God who has saved us, to be still and know that he is God. And God will be exalted among the nations. Let's pray. Father, you are an amazing God, and we confess that so often we get caught up in the distractions of this life, and we become enamored with the gifts of that great God and, and forget about the greatness and the glory of the God behind those gifts. I know that's true of me, and I know that many of my brothers and sisters here face that same challenge. God, help us every day of our lives to stop and to think, 
to consider and meditate on what a great God you are and what an awesome salvation you've given us. We praise your name for our, our salvation, for our forgiveness, for the eternal life you've given us. And I pray that this body of believers here at First Baptist would become so in love with Jesus that their lives and their priorities and their values change to ask the question, how can we help exalt this amazing God's name and his glory in all the nations? In Jesus' name, amen.